I mean, for example, I think that it would be very, if I had like a different kind of approach to the, to the subject of women and, and Middle East and Islam in the way that maybe it's portrayed, you know, in the Western media and in terms of like the idea of like the kind of modern Islam with like, you know, hijab, like way more in your face. And, but I wasn't, you know, I'm not interested actually because there are different layers to the discussion and, you know, it's not immediately recognizable and I know that. Welcome to episode 8 of Magic Praxis. In this episode, we visit the studio of Pinar Yola Khan. I'm Kate Hawes, and this is Clarity Haynes. Pinar Yola Khan was born and raised in Turkey, attended fashion school in London, and studied sculpture and photography at Cooper Union in New York City. Yola Khan's interest in the body, gender, and power leads her to pursue a practice that she likens to anthropology. She has worked with a variety of communities in diverse locations, such as the Turkish countryside, an island off the coast of Brazil, New York City, and London. Yola Khan's photographs explore themes of divinity, sexuality, ethnic heritage, and colonialism. Her subjects, mostly women, are transformed into a kind of sculpture with the use of paint, slabs of meat, and other unconventional garments. For example, in her Mother Goddess series, custom jumpsuits completely encase the model's voluptuous bodies and faces, giving them the look of ancient fertility goddess statues. We visited Pinar in her home and studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. So you're interested in the female body and sort of female identity, Mm -hmm. perhaps, and also fashion and the body and the way we adorn ourselves. Mm -hmm. In many situations, it seems like you're constructing sculptures Mm -hmm. by fashioning garments Mm -hmm. of sorts for your subjects that you then take pictures of. Right. I mean, it's a process that's involved, comparable to maybe anthropology, you know, and, you know, and that type of practice in terms of like going in the field and like um, spending time and actually Mm -hmm. kind of how I, you know, access a community, how I actually go about meeting um, whoever it is that that I want to work with, whether that's, like, a group of, you know, women from, like, New York, like, BBWs, you know, um, or the, like, Be Beautiful Women. Those were the people that I used, you know, for, like, a stone series here. It was shot in New York. Or whether it's a project that I want to do with, like, the, you know, Amazonian indigenous. There's a process involved in which I have to first, like, you know, identify who the community is, then, like, try to identify people who, you know, could help me with access um, to those communities. And, of course, then I have to build, like, a relationship where um, I have to make sure that, you know, they understand, like, what I'm doing and, and just kind of build, like, a relationship of trust, really. Um, you know, then I have my visual references, I construct kind of a language, you know, try to build like a language around, like a visual language around, like the, for example, in terms of the Mother Goddess series or in terms of the like a stone series. You know, I was looking a lot at these like pre-Neolithic figurines, like um, Mother Goddess figurines, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was thinking a lot about having the concentration be on the body. So that's why I cropped like all the models head in like like a stone series, for example, Mm -hmm. to make it look more abstract where you can't tell if it's an object or if it's a real human, but you can't tell the scale, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was really interested in that, um, playing with that. And um, actually recently somebody was saying to me, an archeologist in Turkey was um, telling me that um, because of the energy of the face of the eyes, you know, that uh, on purpose, some of these figurines were left like headless. Mm. Um, yeah. Like when in they Chantal were made, Hague. they were made without yeah. heads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
in your Mother Goddess series, you covered the faces, which reminded me of Lee Bowery. Yes. Um, and almost like the fetish SM kind yes. of community. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I curated a show that you were in, and you, the piece was Boro, where the woman is covered in yes. denim. Yes. Which is so cool. It was amazing. Thank you. People kept seeing that in it, mm-hmm. I noticed, which was interesting. The SNM element? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I mean, that probably, I think you were really just trying to make them look like goddess figurines, right? Yeah. Like the Venus of Willendorf has this kind of nub of a head, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, covering the faces because, again, because of um, the eye contact, I didn't want the eye contact to appear and I did want them to just look like, you know, sculptures. And um, But the SNM element, I mean, I looked at a lot of like, when I was building the jumpsuits, I did look at you know, different types of SNM jumpsuits. Uh, and in terms of SNM, I mean, I guess they were not quite fetish to, co- fetish to um, f- like, objects of, like, fetish, but they were, you know, like, worship idols. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, I did see, like, a parallel, I guess, yeah, yeah. in that. And the idea um, with the fabric that I use, like, um, I used a lot of, like, black spandex. I mean, that was really referring to, like, obsidian, for example, is stone. Um, with like fishnets and gold, you know what I mean? So I was researching like a lot of like textures and types of stones that were used in like the actual, you know, sculptures themselves, and, yeah, the artifacts. In terms of Lee Barry, I mean, I, you know, studied fashion in London like in 1997. So I was very interested in that. I mean, I, I knew about Lee Barry and I'm not from his generation and I'm not yeah. like a club kid, you know? Right. But <laughs> I know his influence in, right. in, in fashion, you know, across the board. And, yeah. There Do were a you lot make of, the jumpsuits yourself? I don't sew them myself because, um, you know, they, you need, like, a special machine to, like, stretch fabric. But, yeah, I make the patterns and everything. Uh-huh. So I, like, measure the person that I'm going to... So they're custom-made for that person? Wait, wait, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then you have someone else... Do the sewing part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in Chanakale, like yeah, where I shot it, I, I was working with a tailor, local tailor, and he was actually really good because he was somebody that came from like the knowledge of the types of people that were there and the types of bodies that we were dealing with, you know, like the hips and certain like darts across the chest and things like that. I mean, he was somebody that understood that like body type. I mean, it would be different if I worked with like maybe a tailor from Europe or something, you know, where like mm-hmm. the body type is like very you know, square hips and like, you know, like a fine waist. I mean, I don't know, you know, because you get your blocks. I mean, we work off of blocks and all the blocks are pretty much standard and that's the standard. So then you work off of the block and like try to actually work with the person's curves or whatever they may be. And there are a lot of clothes. I mean, actually, they really love the clothes. They were like, oh, these are so amazing. Like, can we like, can we keep these, you know, because... You know, because they find it hard, like, I mean, because um, they were, I mean, I guess what you would call, like, plus size here, but a lot of people, like, in Turkey, I mean, that's kind of the body shape, and so that's why we have, like, the harem pants, you know, like, traditionally, it's, like, from the Middle East, I mean, or, like, they will never wear, like, H&M pants or something, because it will never fit anybody, like. <laughs> H&M is, like, I feel like it's made for 19-year-olds. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, like, it's hard to, like, find people, you know, clothes to wear, like, nice yeah. clothes to wear, basically, yeah. that are, like, amazing fabric, and it's, like, custom-made, and it right. looks good, and it's, like, and it actually looks, like, beautiful, like, they look yeah. good in it, you know? Right, right. I mean, I have a lot of, I think that the whole idea of, like, Mother Goddess, I mean, that's, you know, obviously something that comes from being from Turkey. I don't think that I would otherwise pick up on that theme. So 
Yeah, and I think what's interesting with that series is that the Mother Goddess cults were matriarchal societies. So this is, I mean, historic, but that's that's what was going on in that geography at the time. Whereas now, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's, you know, Muslim and it's like the woman must be so oppressed. And, you know, like there's that. And of course, there's religion and I'm sure there's sexism and oppression. I mean, but I don't know where there isn't. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, in terms of Mother Goddess, I think at that moment was important because I thought, you know, well, this is like the prime example that societies lived here before and other civilizations lived here before who actually, you know, valued, like, women in a different kind of way. Right. Yeah. And some people, like, we don't see that. So, you know, all we see is what exists now. Yes. Which is radically different which is why I make work I get you know I mean right. yeah. <laughs> to talk about it but I think that it's uh, maybe it's not very self-explanatory because of the team and people's familiarity with it is like minimal you know if you show mm-hmm. it especially like here in the United States a lot of people see when they look at a big big voluptuous woman I mean they see you know they think about like uh, ideas of beauty and mm-hmm. you know well is this about being fat or is right. this about like being oh, right obese or not right. eating healthy and like you know <laughs> someone must have had a lot of gluten like I don't know <laughs> you know I mean and it's like yeah. no actually you know this is like a body type that exists you know and it's yeah. not body type it's not something about like your you know it's not just as easy as like fat or mm-hmm. thin it's like your bones your metabolism your yeah. you know and culturally what is acceptable sometimes is different than in different societies and this used to be the norm of like, obviously this was a feminine ideal, like in this ancient civilization, otherwise they would just, they would build, you know, these little statues very differently. They would be right. like, looking differently. Yeah. And not only that, it's just like, this was like icons of like worship at yeah. the same time. Mm. Because they were, you know, thinking about fertility. I mean, you know, women were very important. I mean, they, they yeah. were fertile, like the earth and the, you know, the concept right, of the earth right. mother, you know, right. especially in relation to agriculture and all of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, I think that if I had like a different kind of approach to the, to the subject of women and, and Middle East and Islam in the way that maybe it's portrayed, you know, in the Western media and in terms of like the idea of like the kind of modern Islam with like, you know, hijab, like way more in your face. And, but I wasn't, you know, I'm not interested actually because there are different layers to the discussion and, you know, it's not immediately recognizable and I know that. So a lot of people pass on it just thinking there's something about beauty ideas and maybe about being fat and not eating healthy. But of course, that's not what the project's about. I was curious, like, um, what other what artists, in terms of their work, mm-hmm. whether it has to do with the body or not, have mm-hmm. really been influential to you? I mean, when I was in school, there was like a new kind of wave of British artists, but not like Damien Hirst. I mean, more like Anya Galaccio. There was this like Scottish artist that a lot of people actually, she's not like very famous, I guess, because she didn't actually make work that was based on like uh, material, you know. Her work was very much about like sensibilities and things that perished or went away. Um, So I was really interested in this like impermanent art and um, and that's actually how I, I got interested in the materials that I was uh, that I was using, you know, and how like does the person kind of react in it? Like how does it change her posture? Does it change the way she looks at the camera? I thought about it was like more like an investigation to that, 
more so than you know like a photography project right right. yeah so that's how it kind of worked like backwards but then I realized I have to take photographs because then it's like I have no evidence of like what happened which a lot of Anya Galaccio's I think early early work was like that where there was no trace of it and mm. that was like on purpose because it was supposed to be experienced or something and she, she made it a point not to have any record of it but I told her I should make some record of it so okay. I started taking pictures and that's how it evolved um, so I was interested in that I mean wearable art I guess like in like the late 90s also I did look at a lot of like fashion at that time too which is what made me like want to go to fashion school but it was a interesting time I think by the end of 90s fashion photography and all of that was kind of exciting I guess but you know you have to remember I was in Turkey I mean we didn't go to like an art high school or something like that and Turkey at that time and I was born in 1981 I mean we had like two coups former formerly like in 81 and 83 mm. So Turkey was like a very, I mean, when I was growing up in like 93, 94, 95, we, if you wanted to like look at an art book or like a magazine, you would have to like go to like, there was, a, there was one library, there was one private university that opened like I think in 1995 maybe. Yeah, so you would have to like travel to that university's like library to like look at art forum or okay. ID or like face and all of those magazines that didn't exist back then. Like, so you know, to get those references was, I mean, and today you have internet. I mean, and doesn't matter what part of the world it, you know you're in. It's like you can just you know connect to Instagram or something. You can see all these amazing images and things. I mean, at that particular time that I was growing up, it was very limited. I guess I had a wild imagination, but. <laughs> Like, I didn't have a lot of things, you know. We'll return to our conversation with Pinar Yolakan in a moment. You're listening to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. We appreciate your listening. And if you like what you hear, we hope you will rate and review us on iTunes so we can continue to grow our audience. And now, back to our studio visit. Like, for yeah. instance, I keep thinking about the, the Perishables series. I think that really was the one that kind of got me thinking and provoked some things in me. And mm-hmm. I, I think it, it is incredibly complex. Your models are, are white, sort of European descent, mm-hmm. have this sort of formalness to them and mm-hmm. kind of stoic. I mean, I see them mm-hmm. as waspy. Yes. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. yeah. That's how I cast <laughs> I it. I see them as actually. waspy. And then yeah. also they're wearing animal skins, various sort of dead things. And you have to mm-hmm. think about that. Like, are these mm-hmm. things that were slaughtered by, like, whom, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. yeah, that clothing that has embedded clothing. in it mm-hmm. these, like, sort of power dynamics, yes. you know, like, mm-hmm. and history, like the right. history of colonialism. It's like mm-hmm. in there, you know, it's, right. it's like the way in which, mm-hmm. you know, the larger sort of socioeconomic mm-hmm. or cultural ideas are, like, right. being filtered through right. the things we put on our bodies. Yes, exactly. And I guess Victorian times were like, you know, they were also very constricting type of garments. That what people wore in the Victorian times? Yeah. Women. Women, yeah. Like in terms of the waist That's and right. all of that. So, yeah. They're all about like sucking in. They're all about sucking in. Yeah. And so then the, the body, the, like the shape, the ideal shape actually changes throughout Ooh. as well. Yeah, about like, you know, the thinness of the waist or the how curvy like the hip could be or whatever it is. Also, I'm wondering about what it was like to construct these sort of Victorian outfits out of 
animal skins, skins and innards, organs. Maybe mm-hmm. you could talk about that. Like, what was that like to craft those? Like, did you have help? Like, it must have been incredibly um, tedious. We know how to make a pattern. I mean, you could really make it out of anything. You can make it out of chicken skin or whatever it is, but you have to experiment with the material first to understand the materials, what your limits are, you know. The process was pretty much like I would, whatever material I was interested in, I would buy that. Like, I would just collect bits and pieces of it. I would check, you know, how it would look on camera first, like in terms of daylight. And then if it looks like, you know, something that I think, you know, will look good for for my purpose, then I would go on about buying more of it, making like the actual garment to try to see if I can make the garment. And then I would then discard the garment and then the day of the shoot, then I would make it again. You know, the woman would have to come and I couldn't really just like freeze a lot of the garments. They would have to be done the same day. Right. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. So like they would come like maybe 11, 12, you know, like around that time so I would you know get up really early and like you know start sewing and like you know but I would know what I like what I would what I was supposed to do like it wouldn't be a surprise to me you know and then when when the actual model comes and I just kind of like fit it on her body but it was all made to the person's like kind of physiognomy so I would also take a Polaroid I mean it took three years I worked on that project for three years so I started when I was a fashion student in London I continued through when I moved here, you know, to when I got a scholarship to go to school at Cooper Union, I was studying like sculpture and photography. And so I just like continued on, but I was like kind of, you know, investigating into all these things. How do I make the material work? How do I find the woman? You know, how do I talk to the woman? How do I like use the camera? You know, I had to, you know, figure it all out. And I mean, I'm saying, I was thinking a lot about it in terms of the flesh. I mean, I was thinking about it as flesh, but I was also thinking about like the inside of the body, almost like it's kind of turned inside out, sort of. And that there's this like almost like transparency that, you know, that like skin kind of dissolved and that's like the inside almost. I was reading, I can't remember, actually, I can't remember her name now. There was a, she showed a lot about like the abject. Julia Kristeva? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. So with the, the wearing the organs on the body, it's a way mm-hmm. of almost displaying that and forcing that upon the viewer mm-hmm. in a way where it kind of goes back and forth. Like it sort mm-hmm. of looks like a beautiful garment and then you realize what it is exactly. and then you go back and forth. Right. That's why I spend a lot of time on constructing the actual image itself, like as well as, I mean, I have all these I guess, conceptual ideas, but in terms of the actual, you know, the execution of it. Um, because I want that relationship to, like what you just described, to come across that I don't want it to just read as something grotesque because it draws you in, like the image really draws you in at first and you think, oh, these are just some pretty Uh old ladies, you know, maybe it's like our grandmother or something. (laughs) And like then people realize like that there's something weird going on but I can't quite place my finger on it, you know. Also like kind of very confrontational in terms of the... Like yeah. gaze looking at directly at you, and then it's, it's like, interesting that those two series, the perishables in which you're photographing, like Anglo women, mm-hmm. and then the Maria series, mm-hmm. are they Brazilian? Brazilian, women? yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're not white. Yes, they're black. And also the 
tone of the um, garments, garments mm -hmm. sort of the whole in tone matches mm -hmm. generally yeah. their skin color. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, can you talk about like the difference, difference in those two series? Like, which, I think you know, they're, they're sometimes related. They're, they're very parallel. Yeah, I think they're related. They're sisters. I mean, because I did Perishables, then I moved on to Maria. Like, I was thinking a lot about Perishables in terms of colonialism and this idea of uh, what it means to have, like, another skin on yours, you know, and then just kind of to learn to almost live in, in that new skin. You know, I think that that was like a metaphor for me in terms of, you know, how one goes about living in a different culture that's imposed on you or like a different set of, like, new values. And you also have to develop, like, a new kind of a body language. And so that was something, I mean, in terms of Maria, like um, in the Brazilian, you know, obviously Brazil was colonized by the Portuguese and it was the biggest port of slave trade, like that, um, that area where I shot Salvador, um, the name of the city is, and where I shot the, the images, it was in Itaparica, an island that's like about 40 minutes boat, boat ride from, from Salvador. And, you know, those were like, like African, how to say it, and ancestors, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Uh, of like, you know, from like, came from slavery and the slave trade. And a lot of them were like Yoruba. And so they brought a lot of Yoruba traditions, like Kanduble is like a mix of like, you know, Yoruba religion with like, um, with like Catholic religion. There's certain aspects of, it that, aspects of it that they also picked from that. So that's why there, I thought that it would make sense. I mean, in terms of this like 16th century setting, you, know, you have these like Baroque sort of clothes. I went to um, Brazil to do like a residency with like mm. a UNESCO fellowship and to that particular island. And so that's where like wow. the idea and the project developed. And yeah, and it was very similar to Perishables because I mean, same kind of ideas, but just manifest a little bit differently in a different country. Obviously it's different, different group of people, but the yeah. idea in terms of embedding this like second body, you know, like this maybe Catholic. I mean, I, that's why the series is called Maria as well, because they all have to like, you know, be, kind of had these new names, right? Whatever mm. their names were, whatever mm -hmm. the language was, it was all lost. So it's like, it was, they were now Maria, you know? And Maria is like yeah. this sort of iconic female. Yeah, Maria, you know? Obviously. Yeah. It's, her name is Maria, right? I mean, <laughs> Mary, Mary. Mary. Everybody is Mary. Mary, yeah. It just made me think, you know, that they mm -hmm. have to like, that with this new idea of like also beauty and like, because it's very, I guess it's one thing if you're converting them to like, I don't know, Hinduism or something, but it's like, you know, if it's, if it's about Christianity, I think that these, are, there are very specific, it's like a white, you know, woman with thin hair, like they are very, it's very visual, I mean, the, the, the characters, and I think that it is like a magazine cover, I mean, if you think about it, the imagery, you know, in terms of like Mary and like how that image is composed, right? Or like Jesus, like blue eyes and like mm -hmm. okay. long hair or whatever. And like, yeah, like in Islam, for example, there isn't, there isn't any imagery because we don't, you know, you don't attribute those like qualities of like being godlike to like a human, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all like calligraphy. So it's very abstract. So you don't know when you talk about Muhammad, you don't know. You know, he's the prophet. You don't have right? an image of him. You don't have an image of him. You don't mm -hmm. know if it looks like Osama bin Laden or if it looks like mm -hmm. Jesus or if it looks like, you know? Yeah, so you don't know what his characters look like. I'm just saying because they're so defined, I think, in Christianity. Yeah. yeah. And that when you're using that image to, like, colonize, like, a different culture, it's very effective. Right. So essentially, I think that, you know, I mean, one could possibly say fashion in, you know, the industry that we're talking about in terms of not having 
a big butt, but you know, you have to have like a smaller butt because it's for H and M, and you know, it yeah, can't yeah. be like a Brazilian, <laughs> you know. Right, right. Yeah. So that's why you're taking in that series. You're taking these women and forcing them into the sort of the situation. Of yeah. Right. Christian. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't like say Christian, fashion. but like this, like Catholic, well, yeah. yeah, and which is the reality of Catholic. Brazil today. I mean, it's yeah. not something really my utopia, really, in either. I mean, mm -hmm. that's just what happened over the years, yeah. right? Yeah, that they ended up wearing those clothes and embedding those names, and maybe their body language changed and certain things. I mean, religion for one thing. I mean, in terms of Yoruba religion, was forbidden. Anything that came from Africa was forbidden, so they couldn't practice, you know, or worship whatever they thought they they could. I mean, that was like an effect of, and today when Brazil, you know, people still talk about like how, how, how violent Brazil is and, and the drugs, the, the violence, I mean, it, it came from that time. It didn't come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. there were native Indians that were living happily, like, right. <laughs> in their forest, yeah. if you want to go that far back. Yeah. So all that violence came with colonialization. Right. And, and the way they colonized, it was very brutal and violent, and so it just continues till today. Which kind of Which, brings us up to the present. You were just in Brazil mm -hmm. with the... Um, with the Kayapo tribe and like an yeah. Asuruni, yeah. Isn't there land being yes. used for, def like to, for mm -hmm. lumber and their... Yeah, deforestation, yeah, exactly. So what's happening there now is actually... I mean, it's been going on for a really long time since the, since the contact. And this is in the Amazon, like this really the Amazon deeply... Region. Well, the, you know, the Amazon is huge, but like the, the, speaking of the Brazilian Amazon, right? Um, well, you know, there's been obviously several, you know, since the colonization, I mean, like United States of America, I mean, there were a lot of native tribes that don't exist anymore or right. like the mm -hmm. forest has been. So, yeah, but what's left of it, people um, like this particular tribe that I visited, they were first contacted in like 1960s, right? I'm not an expert on the subject, but just what I've learned so far and what I've seen so far, I can tell. And what they've told me, I can tell, right? The leaders that, that I met there, the community leaders, you know, the, the chiefs of the tribes, you know? They sat, sat down with me and they explained to me, you know, that what was happening and in terms of this new law that, that the president, Temer, passed because Dilma got impeached and then Temer took, you know, was put in office. And then so then Temer put this law, it's called like PEC 215, that part of it involves the, um, you know, the remaining indigenous territories to be open to uh, miners and farmers, mm. industrial, industrial farmers and all of that. So they said that they were really worried because, you know, I mean, it's possible that in 50 years these tribes will also not exist. It's very possible that in 50 years all of the villages that I visited in the middle of nowhere mm. will become, you know, roads and, I don't know, farms and wow. there will be cows, like, you know. Right. Because that's what happened to like the rest of it. I mean, when I when I when I crossed all the all the all the indigenous territories, the borders of the indigenous territories, there are borders, but it's like mm -hmm. one side is a farm, and the and then the Amazon begins. I mean, right. that's how it is. Wow. You know, and because I traveled by by road, I mean, I've seen this firsthand. So it's not, and it's not as, I mean, so like everybody knows this. Like I'm not the person. I think the first person to bring the news. You know. Right. I mean, in a way, so. these tribes, like the one you visited, mm -hmm. are like the keepers of the last yes, chunks I mean, of like, yeah. forests that are right. that diverse and mm -hmm. that 
sort yeah. of thriving and intact. Yes. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. not to sort of romanticize it, but no, it's the truth. They're able to live there and yes. coexist with it. It's very difficult. It's very complicated because I mean, there are different indigenous groups. They have different ideas, you know. So it's like I can't say how the massive deforestation happened and what the deals were and how it was done. But I can talk about like this one female leader that I went to speak with because I met her personally and I know her fight. And I mean, that's why I made a point to interview her for for this magazine. And they did ask me to voice, you know, some of these issues that that they were facing. But at the same time, you know, as like something that I could do for the community. Yeah. Because it's like, I don't know what else I could do that could like make their their lives better. You know, and I guess I'm as an artist, like I'm not somebody that works for, you know, I don't work for the UN. I don't work for like some not-for-profit or for for like a government or, you know, I'm just a person. So I think that it's okay for me to say whatever I think, you know. And and all I can say is like, I mean, I, I went there, I met with her and she's just this one woman that really just fights against like the world, you know, just by herself. And there's no government behind her. I mean, the the Kayapo, of course, there are a lot of. Um, so the Kayapo is one tribe, but they have they have they hold a big, very big territory in the Amazon. And Pauni is like a very kind of famous and one of their bigger leaders that I've also met. But but I was interested in Tuida because she was a female, and you know she went to all of these meetings in terms of like the Belamonchi. Belamonchi is like this dam mm. that they were building, and it was going like on like uh, Shingu River, which is like where all the, uh, most of the Kayapo settlements are. And it's a sacred river, you know, and all of that, of course. And, um, but of course it's bad for the environment at the same time, whether it's sacred or not. I mean, it's like for any living human being to get like a river dirty, it's gonna like eventually affect the water and the animals around it. I mean, so then the government had these plans. I mean, because of her, she went to meeting the way that she was. She was very famous with this one picture that Bomb Magazine also published with her like machete like across this guy's face. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because of her, they changed the plans of the dam, for example. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, wow. she was like a young woman at that time. I think she was like 19 or 20 years old, you know, so she was just like that. And to this day, like she built a school, you know, by herself. And it's just like you go there and you see it, it's just... I mean, she, you know, it's just like a little shack, but, you know, she's doing all these things. And that's, I think to me, it was very inspirational because, you know, we came from just like, you know, the elections and it's mm-hmm. like everybody was with her. Then didn't quite happen. And like, you know, what can you do as like a leader or like a, as a woman in, right. in this world that makes a difference? Or is, are we just all doomed or like, what is, how is this going to work out, you know? So to me, it was great to me. Like, I felt like that was such an inspiration to see, you know, how you can be just one person, but, but you can still fight. It doesn't mean that you have to be just quiet and accept and just be like, feel defeated and sit down. You know, mm-hmm. you can actually... Really just being like, I don't care, these dudes are sitting in this meeting, but I'm just going to go, you know, like take up my mushroom and then just tell them like they can't do this, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like as an artist sometimes or as a person, you know, sometimes you feel like there's not much you can do. You can just sit on Facebook all day and just, you know, share everything. But like <laughs> you can actually also go there and be like, okay, see it for yourself and just mm-hmm. do something about it as well. It's not just... I don't feel so pacified, I mean, you know? Yeah. I mean, despite the bad news, everything going on here or in Turkey or whatever, it's like we still, you know, we still can do something. Well, that is a great note to end on, I think. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been really inspiring Thanks and interesting. Thanks so much.
This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.